I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. When a healthy young person collapses suddenly, the cause could be cardiac arrest. What is it and what can be done? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Sudden cardiac arrest is often deadly. It's different from a heart attack. That's primarily a plumbing problem due to a clog in a coronary artery. Cardiac arrest is an electrical problem. When the heart stops beating suddenly, seconds count. That's why defibrillators can save lives. We're talking with one of the world's leading experts on sudden cardiac death. He also shares important details about heart arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, revealing the secrets of sudden cardiac death. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, epidemiologists are not yet using the term triple-demic, but cases of influenza, RSV, and COVID-19 are all on the rise. According to Weekly Influenza Surveillance Report, seasonal influenza activity continues to increase in most parts of the country, most notably in the south-central, southeast, mountain, and west coast regions. The number of weekly flu hospital admissions continues to increase. COVID hospital admissions are up nearly 10% over the previous week, and deaths from COVID are also on the rise. Respiratory syncytial virus rates are also climbing. With holiday shopping and traveling right around the corner, upper respiratory tract infections are likely to get worse before the new year. COVID-19 has contributed to a wide range of complications, from disruptions in smell and taste to fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, and brain fog. Now, add atrial fibrillation to that list. An analysis of patient records from during and before the pandemic shows that people who come down with COVID-19 are more likely to develop atrial fibrillation in the following year than people with other upper respiratory tract infections. Specifically, 2.2% of those who had COVID were diagnosed with this heart rhythm abnormality compared to 1.2% of those with flu or colds. That's a relative risk differential of 83%, which is significant. These results are quite similar to those achieved by comparing people who caught COVID-19 to those who had upper respiratory tract infections before the pandemic began. People with high blood pressure before a COVID infection were especially susceptible to AFib. 4% of them were identified with AFib in the year after infection. The authors are raising the alarm so that healthcare providers will be careful to assess patients for AFib if they've had COVID. One troubling complication of long COVID is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS for short. This autonomic nervous system problem causes a racing heart, shortness of breath, dizziness, and fainting, especially on standing. POTS often interferes with normal exercise. It can have a major impact on a person's quality of life. Until now, doctors have treated it with simple measures like recommending a person eat more salt and wear compression hose, as well as drugs that control immune responses. Researchers tested transcutaneous electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve through the tragus, the little flap on the front of the ear. The stimulation was low-level and did not cause discomfort. There were a dozen people in the intervention group and 14 getting sham stimulation over two months. By the end of the study, those getting stimulation had slower heart rates and lower levels of autoantibodies and cytokines. One of the most innovative food studies in recent memory is called PREDIMED. That stands for Prevención con Dieta Mediterránea. This three-year controlled trial included more than 7,000 older volunteers with multiple cardiac risk factors, including hypertension. During the study, investigators measured tomato consumption among various groups. They found that people who consumed the most tomato-based foods had substantially lower blood pressure, 
Their conclusion? Tomato consumption, including tomato-based products, is beneficial in preventing and managing hypertension. Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia are among the most common and feared conditions of older people. Until now, there have been no effective medications to reverse cognitive decline. The new FDA-approved anti-amyloid medications don't change the overall trajectory of dementia. Researchers tested a personalized risk reduction program. 172 people at risk for cognitive dysfunction were recruited to a two-year study. Half of them got personalized coaching to improve their existing risk factors, like smoking, hypertension, or isolation. This multi-domain intervention led to improved cognitive test scores and a reduced risk for dementia. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. More than 800,000 people have heart attacks each year. Most people imagine an older man clutching his chest in pain. The ambulance speeds him to the emergency department where quick action to clear the blood clot often saves his life. That's not the only heart killer, though. More than 350,000 people experience cardiac arrest in the U.S. each year. For the vast majority of them, that's it. 60 to 80 percent die before they even reach the hospital. Sudden cardiac death is not the same thing as a heart attack. Today, we'll learn more about this catastrophic event and what you can do to reduce your risk. We're talking with Dr. Zian Tsen. He's a cardiologist and electrophysiologist that's a specialist in heart rhythm disorders. Dr. Tsen is the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's a world expert in cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death, its risk factors and mechanisms. He's the founder and principal investigator of the NIH-funded Postmortem Systematic Investigation of Sudden Cardiac Death Study, which has investigated every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011 in collaboration with the medical examiner. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Zian Sen. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Dr. Sen. I'd like to start with a few statistics here. According to the CDC, about 800,000 Americans have heart attacks every year. Nearly 700,000 of them die from heart disease. The American Heart Association reports that more than 350,000 cardiac arrests occur outside hospitals annually. These statistics are daunting and... For many of us, they're also very confusing. So I I guess the first question is, what's the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest? Sure, I'm glad to, to, to clarify that, and that's a very important distinction. A heart attack simply means that the heart has been starved of blood, and there's a part of the heart muscle that has died from lack of oxygen, and the most commonplace way that happens is atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries or blockage in your arteries and a blood clot forms in one of those arteries or the atherosclerotic plaque ruptures and a heart attack forms because that part of the heart muscle has been choked of oxygen. That's distinguished from a cardiac arrest where your heart stops suddenly, typically from lethal arrhythmias, which include ventricular fibrillation, where your bottom chamber of your heart goes haywire, beats too fast to have a coordinated conduction, or your heart rhythm stops completely, what we say asystole or flatline. So they're two different things. Sometimes they go together, but not always. In other words, a heart attack can cause cardiac arrest if it's severe enough, but you can also have cardiac arrest in the absence of a heart attack. Well, we really want to get into that because I think many physicians and certainly a lot of 
normal people don't quite understand what that means. But first, when I was in graduate school, I did open heart surgery on dogs and we would induce ventricular fibrillation. And my mentor, Dr. Hank Swain said, you know, it's going to look a lot like a bag of worms. And I, I couldn't imagine what he said until I actually did it. And I saw the heart squirming instead of beating. Is that a fair representation? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, the, the heart Technically speaking, in ventricular fibrillation still has electrical activity, of course, but it is not in a coordinated fashion that's necessary to generate cardiac output or blood pressure. So essentially, the heart's quivering uncontrollably, generating no blood pressure, no cardiac output, and therefore no circulation to any organs, including, most importantly, the brain. Now, when you talk about cardiac arrest, we think about, for example, LeBron James's son, because there he was playing basketball, incredibly fit, and boom, he falls over with cardiac arrest. And, and there have been other situations somewhat, somewhat similar to that, like on a football field, and you see a guy who is incredibly fit physically, and that they can fall over in cardiac arrest. That's very different from the 68-year-old man who's clutching his chest in pain and has hours to get to the emergency department and have people put in a stent and basically, you know, save, save the life and save the heart. Yes, that's a perfect illustration of cardiac arrest versus heart attack. The first example you gave, and I have no firsthand knowledge of the LeBron James's son, but it was reported that he collapsed from cardiac arrest. And it was not preceded, as to my knowledge, by any heart attack. Your heart simply stopped electrically, causing you to collapse. As opposed to the textbook case you just illustrated, where somebody has a heart attack, they have symptoms of chest pain because their heart was starved of oxygen, leading to death of the heart muscle. And that damage continues to contribute and, and, and widen if you don't open up that artery. And that in that situation, that's a heart attack. And the first situation is a cardiac arrest. A, a lot of people use a, uh, an analogy of plumbing to say, okay, if the atherosclerosis is affecting the coronary arteries, it's like a pipe getting plugged up. And what you're telling us is that for cardiac arrest, the electrical system is what we should be paying attention to. So you are a cardiac electrophysiologist. Can you tell us more about that, please? Yes. Yeah, so what I do is focus on the electrical part of the heart and diseases of the electrical part of the heart. And so the way you can think about the heart is like a car engine. You have essentially the engine to work well has to pump well, and it can't pump well without a good electrical system or good fuel system. And so the coronary arteries, if you will, are kind of like the uh, fuel system, the fuel pumps, the fuel lines, and then the electrical system or the alternator and the battery and the ignition systems. And so I focus on the electrical part of the heart. Any arrhythmias, including upper chamber or bottom chamber arrhythmias, and so that's my clinical expertise. Um, but that, of course, affects many aspects of healthy art function, including heart failure, pumping function, and coordinated contraction. So, Dr. Tsen, you pay close attention to the electrical activity of the heart. What causes a cardiac arrest in somebody who has perfectly fine coronary arteries. In other words, they have no heart disease or, or almost none, and yet their heart can stop or it can go into ventricular fibrillation. Why? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really the focus of a lot of my research. But the way I approach uh, a patient who has cardiac arrest is Again, very similar to that analogy I, I described to you, it 
it can very much be induced by a blood flow problem. So a heart attack absolutely can, if it's bad enough, can cause a, a cardiac arrest. But in the setting of normal coronary arteries, those coronary arteries can spasm or suddenly uh, narrow from a reflex reaction, or the coronary arteries themselves may have, you may have been born with a condition where the coronary arteries come off of the wrong valves and are pinched in the setting of exercise. That's what we call anomalous coronary arteries. Um, now that, that aside, what other causes? It could be a structural problem whereby the heart is dilated, what we call dilated cardiomyopathy. The chambers are abnormally enlarged or the chambers are abnormally thick, such as you may have heard hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the most common inherited heart condition that leads to cardiac arrest where your heart is abnormally thick and therefore leads to abnormal electrical conduction or obstruction of blood flow during extreme exercise. So those are the structural problems. And then you can have an electrical problem. You could be born with an electrical problem where there's abnormalities of the electrical activation or electrical recovery period of the heart. And so either of those, if there's derangements in either of those parts of the normal cardiac activation or recovery, that could put you at risk for cardiac arrest as well. So you, in other words, you could be born with a condition where your coronary arteries are not coming off of the right area of your anatomy, or they could spasm. Those, that's the blood flow problem. Or it could be a structural problem, or it can be a pure electrical problem. So there's a litany of causes that I think about when I see a patient who's survived cardiac arrest. Dr. Sen, I believe you've said that cardiac, sudden cardiac death is the most common cause of death in the United States, more than the other top five causes combined. How is that possible? So it requires us to first dive into how we define deaths. And that's what we've always thought is that sudden cardiac death is a number one killer. But part of my research has been under uncovering whether that's actually true. And I'll be happy to take you through that in the next segment. You're listening to Dr. Zian Sen, a cardiologist and electrophysiologist. He's the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at UCSF. Dr. Chen is a world expert in cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. He's the founder and principal investigator of the NIH-funded Postmortem Systematic Investigation of Sudden Cardiac Death Study, which has investigated every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011, in collaboration with the medical examiner. After the break, we'll learn more about how cardiac arrest happens and, and how we could prevent it. We'll review the difference between a heart attack and sudden cardiac arrest. Are there differences between men and women with respect to susceptibility? What are the main causes of sudden non-cardiac death in women? Do men and women experience different symptoms of heart attacks? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance. More information at cocovia.com. 
Sudden cardiac arrest can happen with little or no warning, and it can affect young people who appear to be in perfect health, like LeBron James's son Bronny during basketball practice. Shouldn't defibrillators be widely available in public places? We're talking with Dr. Zian Sen, the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at UCSF. He's a cardiologist and an electrophysiologist and an expert on sudden cardiac death. He's the founder and principal investigator of the post-SCD study, which has investigated every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011 in collaboration with the medical examiner. Dr. Tsen, we understand that you have uh, some long-running research going in San Francisco trying to understand how cardiac arrest happens and perhaps how we might be able to reduce the toll it takes. Could you tell us about your research, please? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I must give credit to my incredible partner here in San Francisco. Her name's Dr. Ellen Mossett. She's uh, one of the deputy medical examiners in San Francisco County, and we've been partnering for 14 years now running in our study we call it the San Francisco Postmortem Systematic Investigation of Sudden Cardiac Death. And what we've been doing is tracking and surveilling every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011, and not only collecting comprehensive pre-mortem records, everything that they had done in their lifetime, but also carry arrest records such as the paramedic run sheet and the rhythm. And then she incredibly has done autopsy, toxicology, histology, a complete postmortem on all of these sudden deaths. So I believe we're the first in the world to do this, to really uncover what exactly kills you suddenly. And the way I lucked into this partnership was early in my career, I tried to study the genetics of sudden cardiac death. And that led me to really dive into the literature and ask questions of how do you define the condition? Because you can't study the genetics, let alone the risk factors or the characteristics, unless you know exactly which ones are cardiac. And it turns out the way we define sudden cardiac death up until our study has been a presumed definition. And the most common definition is typically what the World Health Organization uh, uses, which is death within one hour of symptom onset, if you're witnessed or death within 24 hours of being alive uh, and in um, normal health if you're unwitnessed. And it doesn't take a lay person to ask the question, well, how do you know that's cardiac? It's assumed to be cardiac. And the problem is that these are all out-of-hospital deaths. So they had not been seen by a doctor before they died suddenly. And so they are all medical examiner coroner cases because they've died out of the hospital. And they all go to the medical examiner coroner. And typically, medical examiners and coroners are so busy with the forensic cases, that's the traumas, the homicides, the suicides, that they're too busy to investigate the natural deaths, such as sudden deaths. And so I discovered it's really all of our statistics on causes of death are really presumed guesses. They're pure guesses of whether it's the medical examiner or the last physician to have seen the, doc, uh, the, the patient. And, and so those statistics you cited in the first segment, if you dive into it, those are best based on death certificates. And death certificates are simply the best guess of the last doctor to have seen that patient. And so that's what we started with. We said, let's take all of these sudden deaths and let's figure out which ones are cardiac. And along that journey, I've discovered so many other conditions that kill you suddenly. Um, along the way, of course, we've found cardiac causes still make up all, a little over half, but the non-cardiac causes make up almost half. And it's a bit of a surprise, a big surprise to the field. But if you step back and think about it, well, it's actually not, maybe not so much a surprise that Many other conditions, any catastrophic 
condition in any other organ system could kill you suddenly. So we've been characterizing all these deaths in San Francisco with the help of these family members who've been so gracious to allow us to study their loved ones and collect specimens from them for the benefit of, hopefully, uh, the community. And can you describe for our listeners the difference between a sudden cardiac arrest, a sudden death, someone who falls over, you know, they're walking down the street and boom, they fall over literally with their heart not pumping compared to, again, what we talked about earlier, which is a heart attack where somebody feels the elephant sitting on their chest they you know, have time to get to the emergency department. The doctors there do some blood tests, rush them into the cardiac cath lab, do that cardiac catheterization, and over the course of the next several hours, their heart recovers and, and they go on about their business within several days compared to the person, usually a man, who falls over dead without any warning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yes. Um- the two are sometimes related, but not always. So the condition of a heart attack where your heart is starved of blood and oxygen and you have heart damage and you have to go to the cath lab to open up that artery may not cause cardiac arrest. In other words, may not cause the electricity of your heart to fibrillate and stop pumping. That condition is distinct from cardiac arrest, which simply means your heart has stopped pumping. And typically, it means your electricity has caused your heart to stop pumping, but not necessarily. And as I, as I uh, described earlier, many conditions can cause your heart to stop pumping. And the heart itself may be the primary cause, or it could have stopped due to another organ system failing. So for example, we've coined the term sudden neurologic death because we found that the second largest non-cardiac cause of sudden death was an array of neurologic conditions such as a severe stroke or severe hemorrhage in the brain or severe seizure attack. And those things can also cause your heart to stop suddenly, but your heart stopping suddenly was secondary to that neurologic disease. And so just simply looking at the heart stopping suddenly ignores all the underlying causes for that heart to stop suddenly. And we can't make inroads into making a better survival benefit from after cardiac arrest until we dissect what exactly causes people to to, uh, have cardiac arrest. So again, cardiac arrest is where your heart stops pumping suddenly and you collapse. That may or may not have been due to a heart attack. And a heart attack is where heart was starved of oxygen, typically from a blockage in a coronary artery. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor. It can help you discover a wealth of information about how sleep, exercise, stress, and of course, food choices affect your body. You've often heard us talk on the People's Pharmacy about the importance of glucose levels. When you can avoid extreme peaks and dips, you feel better all around. And NutriSense can help a lot with that. I've been very impressed with all the information the biosensor has offered. I've learned that our favorite breakfast of refried beans with an egg is almost perfect for my blood sugar response. Also, a little dark chocolate after a high-protein meal doesn't bother my blood sugar. But if I have chocolate between meals, my blood sugar goes up pretty sharply. We've recommended that people with diabetes track their blood sugar response to food choices. In the past, you could do that only with multiple finger sticks. With NutriSense, the continuous glucose monitor does that painlessly, and the app makes the results clear. NutriSense is not just for people with metabolic disorders, though. Anyone who wants to feel better and become healthier can benefit. You get a whole month of advice from a board-certified nutritionist, which is invaluable. 
NutriSense also provides handy learning modules to help you learn more about nutrition and get the most benefit from what you eat. Take charge of your nutrition today at NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30, where data-driven insights meets personalized nutrition. You'll receive a $30 discount off your first month, which includes two CGM Continuous Glucose Monitor sensors, free shipping, and a month of professional nutritionist support. You can even use your FSA or HSA account for additional savings. That's NutriSense.com slash Pharmacy30. Thank you, NutriSense, for supporting today's show. Now, Dr. Sin, as Joe was describing a heart attack, he was possibly indulging in some stereotyping. He said, you know, usually a man clutches his chest. I am wondering whether a cardiac arrest has a, a, a differential. Does it affect men more than women? And what about heart attacks? Do they affect men more than women? So that's a great question. And Heart attacks and cardiac arrests don't discriminate. They affect men and women, not necessarily equally, but catastrophically in either case. So certainly it is true that men have more heart attacks, but women is, have, have just as many heart attacks just delayed. Their presentation of heart attacks is perhaps five to 10 years later, but it doesn't, it doesn't have, it's not a less burden, a lower burden of heart attacks. Cardiac arrests indeed also are approximately 60% men in our study, but it is still is a substantial killer of women in our study. The other important thing to point out is that the causes underlying sudden death are different in men and women. Hmm. It turns out in men, it is approximately two-thirds of the time cardiac, whereas in women, it's actually less than half the time that is a sudden death due, due to a cardiac cause. So inroads into surviving cardiac arrest begin with dissecting these underlying causes, which are different in men and women. Well, what sorts of things would cause sudden non-cardiac death in women? Is, are we talking more about those neurological causes you mentioned? Great question. And indeed, yes, women had a higher risk of these neurologic conditions, especially hemorrhages in the brain. And it turns out that many of our cases where people died of hemorrhages were on blood thinners. And men and women react differently to blood thinners and may have higher risk of bleeding in the brain from some of these blood thinners. The other important cause we uncovered was pulmonary embolisms. So these are large blood clots in the lungs that stop oxygenation suddenly and kill you. Those causes were much more common in women than men. So it highlights the different biology between men and women and thinking about these causes more carefully in men and women. Now, turning our attention for just a moment to the heart attack, the atherosclerotic attack, uh, I know that's not actually your specialty, but we understand that men and women may have different symptoms as they begin to experience such a situation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. The stereotype case of someone clutching their chest, have an elephant sitting on their chest, that's much more common in men. Women are known to have atypical presentations, we say of a heart attack. So it may it's not usually the chest pain necessarily. It could be shortness of breath. It could be fatigue. Uh, so it's very, it's a different presentation in women. And we in the field have become much more open-minded in, in thinking about heart attacks in women, regardless of the symptoms. Now, I am trying to imagine what the symptoms of cardiac arrest are. Are there symptoms or do you just dropped dead? Good question. So indeed, the definition of suddenness is that symptoms are no last no longer than one hour. So that allows for some window of time that somebody might have had a warning sign 
Indeed, some people had no warning signs whatsoever and collapsed and died suddenly. But typically, the symptoms could range from chest pain to dizziness to fainting, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, or extreme fatigue. Any of those sort of counts, if you will, as a symptom we've discovered as a warning sign before you died suddenly. Now, one interesting to think about is that those are just the symptoms that were recorded. And it would be fascinating to think about had we been able to take a more careful history, what exact symptoms might they be having before they actually collapsed and died suddenly. Um, And we're diving into some of the other biology to try to uncover those answers. Dr. Sen, I think that most of our listeners are really interested in what they can do to either A, prevent sudden cardiac death, or B, reverse it when it happens. So you mentioned a spasm, a sudden spasm in the coronary artery might cause this, what we call arrhythmia, this irregular heartbeat that leads to ventricular fibrillation, for example. Is there any way that we can prevent that from happening? And if not, we need to have defibrillators all over the place so that when people start to experience symptoms, they can, they can station themselves next to a defibrillator or have one available at home so that somebody can reverse this fatal arrhythmia. That's exactly right. So the way I think about preventing cardiac arrest, if you were lucky enough to have survived cardiac arrest, in general, that person uh, receives a defibrillator, an implanted defibrillator. So it's a surgical procedure that I perform to implant a device in their chest to monitor their heart rhythm at all times and deliver a life-saving shock if another cardiac arrest happens. So in general, I won't go into specifics in terms of in which situations might you not give somebody a defibrillator after cardiac arrest. But in general, if you've been lucky enough to have survived a cardiac arrest, you get a defibrillator. But that leaves the huge open question, how do we identify the people in the community who have never had a cardiac arrest and who needs a defibrillator in that situation? And so we've begun in the field to, to understand some of those risks, but those risks are nowhere near complete in terms of identif- in identifying people. So one of them is heart failure. So if your heart pumping function has declined to the point of 35% or less in general, such a person should get a defibrillator because their heart is at high risk of stopping suddenly. Right. So that's one condition. But Otherwise, what we try to do is identify primordial conditions. In other words, conditions before that cardiac arrest, such as coronary artery disease risk factors, preventing the heart attack in the first place, treating high blood pressure, and those primordial risk factors, the earlier risk factors before the cardiac arrest. Now, you raised a very important point, which is well, then, if we can't predict who exactly in the community might have cardiac arrest, then How might we treat people who might have cardiac arrest in the community? And so indeed, availability of defibrillators is key because the time to resuscitation is the most important factor in whether you survive a cardiac arrest. So early access to defibrillator, and this is widely available in common public spaces such as airports or hotels. These are AEDs, but they're not everywhere. Um, And so Research is ongoing about how we might distribute defibrillators in the public. There have been some elegant drone studies I've learned in Europe, for example, delivery of drone, uh, using drones to deliver AEDs to scenes of cardiac arrest. Um, The other factor is CPR. I think that's very important for the lay person to uh, learn and, and potentially save the loved one. You're listening to Dr. Zian Sen, the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's a cardiologist and electrophysiologist and an expert on sudden cardiac death.
He's the founder and principal investigator of the NIH-funded Postmortem Systematic Investigation of Sudden Cardiac Death Study, which has investigated every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011, in collaboration with the medical examiner. After the break, we'll discuss common heart rhythm problems, like atrial fibrillation. What should people know about AFib? Do certain drugs, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, increase the risk of AFib? You might already own a device that could detect AFib. Which wearables work best? How do cardiologists treat arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember, that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health, made with a proven concentrated flavanol extract. More information at cocovia.com. Heart rhythm disturbances are surprisingly common. By the end of this decade, it's estimated that over 12 million people will have atrial fibrillation. That's abbreviated AFib. What is it? And what can be done to control this potentially devastating arrhythmia? Our guest today is Dr. Zian Sen, a cardiologist and electrophysiologist. He's the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at UCSF. He specializes in catheter ablation of complex arrhythmias and implanting heart rhythm devices. Dr. Sen, we've been talking about ventricular fibrillation in particular, but basically cardiac arrest. The heart stops beating in a regular fashion and people drop over. And if they aren't defibrillated within uh, seconds or a minute or three, that's it. They don't survive. But there are so many other arrhythmias, irregular heart rhythms. So let's start with one that's quite common, atrial fibrillation. What is it and what can be done about it? Yeah, so atrial fibrillation, if you will, is the analog to ventricular fibrillation in the bottom chambers, where the top chambers, instead of pumping in a coordinated fashion, they quiver and don't pump in any sort of coordinated fashion. So if you imagine your upper chambers of your heart should be pumping just prior to the bottom chambers pumping, and their job is to fill the ventricles, not to deliver blood to the whole body. And that's why atrial fibrillation isn't lethal per se, while ventricular fibrillation is lethal because without any pumping function, you're not delivering any blood to the body. Atrial fibrillation, what that does is remove the atrial pumping function to fill the bottom chamber of the heart. And that results oftentimes in symptoms where people feel more tired or they feel fatigued, they feel shorter breath. But importantly, atrial fibrillation also causes your bottom chambers to go much faster and then much more irregular uh, rhythm. So those are generally the symptoms. Now, the most 
important thing to think about when somebody has atrial fibrillation is that it increases your stroke risk by approximately fivefold because the top chambers, when they're not pumping in a coordinated fashion, blood clots can form in the upper chambers and those blood clots can go anywhere in the body. And if it goes up into your brain, that causes a stroke. So those are the main concerns that we think about when somebody has atrial fibrillation. And of course, if a blood clot goes to, for example, your lung, that would be a pulmonary embolism, which is also a serious complication. That's correct. Now, what happens is that these blood clots tend to be pretty small. And, and when they're small, they don't, they're generally absorbed pretty well by the lungs. But your brain is an exquisitely sensitive organ to lack of oxygen. And even small blood clots obviously can cause damage in the form of strokes. If someone has atrial fibrillation, what do they do about it? What do their doctor, do their doctors prescribe something? How is it treated? Yeah, so if somebody presents with atrial fibrillation as their first presentation, first we look for explanations, factors that might have caused that atrial fibrillation external to the heart. So for example, uh, thyroid conditions, can cause atrial fibrillation. Severe infections can cause atrial fibrillation. Very high blood pressures can cause atrial fibrillation. And so the first order of business is to uncover what is the underlying cause, if we can find one, of that atrial fibrillation. Another common cause might be valve disease. So if we can pinpoint underlying causes like that, we treat those underlying causes, otherwise the atrial fibrillation comes back. Now, if we've ruled out all of those other conditions, then we've identified atrial fibrillation itself as a condition that we need to treat. And there, then we start beginning the process of looking at the heart function first and foremost. Um, what we do is an echocardiogram to evaluate the pumping function and the valves to see if there's any abnormalities there that might explain the atrial fibrillation. And then we might do a stress test to look at whether there's lack of blood flow in any part of the heart that might cause the atrial fibrillation. We look at things like blood pressure. We treat high blood pressure as an important risk factor for atrial fibrillation. One quick question about causes. We've read that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may be a risk factor. Is there any truth to that? I think the jury is out on that. There, are, there is indeed some data that suggests that increase. Whether that applies to the general population, I don't think those studies are definitive. I think one of the things that I would recommend is paying attention to your, your, your symptoms of your heartbeat. And if you feel palpitations where your heart is racing, you feel your heart is racing, especially, that might be a condition where you see your doctor to get an EKG or potentially longer term monitoring. And these days with uh, wearables, it becomes much easier. In fact, many of my patients are self-referred. They've discovered atrial fibrillation on their own from their wearables. So I was just going to ask you about that. Uh, what kinds of wearables are most reliable for detecting atrial fibrillation? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, there's the wearables where it simply records your heart rate. It doesn't tell you anything about the rhythm. But as I said earlier, one of the clues to atrial fibrillation is that your heart rate goes much faster. And so if you're wearable, if it, all it does is record your heart rate and tell your heart rate trend during the day, sometimes a clue is looking at your heart rate graph. And if it's, for example, 120 beats per minute for no reason, you're sitting and watching TV or reading a book, there shouldn't be any reason why your heart rate is going so fast. That would be one clue. But I think the more advanced wearables are now able to sometimes record an EKG, a rhythm strip, and that is the gold standard for detecting atrial fibrillation. Um, and so if somebody has a fast rhythm and they might feel some irregularity with their rhythm, if their wearable allows them to record an EKG, that would be the way to detect atrial fibrillation for sure. Now, Dr. Tsen, there are devices beyond the so-called wearables and I think a lot of people have heard that an Apple Watch now has that capability. 
But there are other devices where you literally just hold your thumbs on a little device that's like a, the size of a stick of gum, and it will actually record your electrocardiogram six leads, if I'm not mistaken, and it will tell you or ask a cardiologist to read that electrocardiogram and say, oh, yeah, you've got atrial fibrillation. You better get in to see your doctor pronto, or it might even reveal some other kind of abnormality. That's right. And so what you're describing is um, this technology. Um, this particular company is called Cardia, and it records your EKG. And you record that rhythm on your smartphone, and then your smartphone can send it to your doctor, and then we can interpret that EKG and see if you have atrial fibrillation. That's essentially the same thing as what the Apple Watch does, except in one lead, um, where you're holding your finger on the crown of the watch, and that records an EKG, a single lead EKG. And so both record an EKG, that which then can be sent to your doctor to be interpreted uh, whether you have atrial fibrillation. And cardia is spelled with a K, not a C. That's correct. And I guess the next most important question is, well, okay, you've discovered that you have atrial fib and your doctor confirms that. Now what? Anticoagulants? What about somebody such as yourself, a, a, a cardiac electrophysiologist and ablation therapy? Yeah, good question. So I think first and foremost is reducing stroke risk. And that is the most important consideration when you have atrial fibrillation, because that is how people die when they have atrial fibrillation. The mortality risk for atrial fibrillation is almost entirely accounted for by stroke risk. And so what we use is what's called a CHADS-VASC score, where we take different factors of that patient and add up a score. And if you have greater than a score of two or three, you deserve an anticoagulant. And so those risk factors are age. Greater than 65 gives you one point. Greater than 75 gives you two points. Sex, female sex actually gives you a point. And then if you have conditions like heart failure, high blood pressure, prior stroke, or prior heart attack, or diabetes, each of those gives you a point. So we first look at whether you deserve anticoagulation. And it turns out if you're under a score of two or so, your risk remains low enough that you don't need anticoagulation. So that's the first step. Second is controlling your heart rate during episodes, because before we get to the option of ablation, often the symptoms of atrial fibrillation are due to the fast rate. And so your doctor might prescribe something to slow your heart rate down so you don't feel that palpitations or those racing heartbeats. Often, just controlling the heart rate, sometimes people don't feel their atrial fibrillation. And so I reserve ablation therapy for people who are symptomatic. So they truly feel their atrial fibrillation and they have otherwise a healthy heart. Um, there are certainly conditions now that we've uncovered where ablation can be helpful. You may have heard some recent trials where ablation has been helpful in the setting of heart failure. So we're learning and expanding our therapy to different patient populations that could benefit. We've spent a lot of attention now on atrial fibrillation. I imagine there are other electrical abnormalities that you treat when your patients show up. Can you tell us briefly which are the most important? Yes. Yeah, so great question. Um, as I alluded to earlier, part of my practice is implanting defibrillators in people who may have survived cardiac arrest. Um, and so these are devices that record your rhythm and kick in if you have a dangerous rhythm such as ventricular fibrillation to shock you. Another condition that I treat that is similar is when somebody develops heart block. So their electricity in the top chamber no longer transmits to the bottom chamber and you have a very slow heart rate and sometimes people faint or pass out and come in and we discover that their heart rate is very, very low. And in that condition, I might implant a pacemaker to treat those slow rhythms. So other conditions that I might treat are what we call premature ventricular contractions. So these are extra heartbeats coming from the bottom chamber of the heart. And these 
areas of the heart then lead to uh, early contractions that may re, uh, may cause symptoms such as skipping or fast rhythms. And so in addition to medical treatment, we can ablate those areas of the heart that are causing those abnormal rhythms. Other conditions I might treat are called supraventricular tachycardia. So that's a fancy word for your heart goes into a short circuit. And so we all have one normal electrical pathway between the top and bottom chamber of the heart. And some people are born with a second electrical pathway, which allows for a short circuit to happen where their heart goes very, very fast due to this short circuit, this electrical short circuit. And so during an ablation procedure, I would be looking for this abnormal pathway and getting rid of it with an ablation procedure. Now, Dr. Sen, I have to tell you, I do have PBCs and I have a lot of them, but I don't feel them. They don't bother me. How dangerous are those PBCs? Because my Apple Watch lets me know. <laughs> yeah, yes. you've got PBCs, let your doctor know. And I've checked in with the cardiologist and he says, eh, don't worry about it. That's an excellent question. So PBCs, as you said, the first distinction is whether you feel them. And second distinction is what's the burden of them? And so the most important thing I think about is what is the percentage of your heartbeats that are these abnormal PVCs? And there's emerging literature, emerging studies that a high burden of PVCs may lead to weakening of your heart muscle and heart failure. And what is that threshold? Somewhere between 10 and 20%. So if you haven't yet had a long-term monitor to quantify the amount of your heartbeats that are PVCs, I might recommend doing so. And is there anything that can be done about them uh, you know, other than cut back on caffeine? <laughs> yes. So um, we start with medicines and often beta blockers are effective at reducing PVCs, but other classes of medicines like calcium channel blockers can also be effective. But if those fail or the patient prefers, an ablation procedure could be effective. Now, that said, I think one of the other important factors is to determine, are these single type PVCs or are they different types of PVCs? So in other words, some people may have a high burden of PVCs, but they're the exact same PVC. And I can detect that on a 12 lead EKG. I can determine where it's coming from typically and whether it's the exact same type of PVC. If that's one type of PVC, that is a great candidate. That person is a great candidate for ablation because all I need to do is look for that focus where it's coming from and cauterize that tissue where it's coming from so it doesn't come back. But some people may have different PVCs, which leads to uh, looking for other underlying causes. You have mentioned that part of your practice involves implanting pacemakers for people whose heart rhythm has gone awry. I am wondering about the reliability of pacemakers. How often do they go haywire? It's a great question. Um, as part of our research, we have been tracking all these cases that happen to have a pacemaker defibrillator. We published our work on this a few years ago in um, JAMA Internal Medicine. But what we discovered is approximately 4.5% of sudden deaths had a pacemaker defibrillator. And when we looked deeply in those cases, it turns out almost half the time there was some kind of problem in those cases, whether it was a wire problem, a battery problem, a software problem, or a programming problem. And these problems are completely undetected by doctors or the FDA because our current surveillance system requires you to be alive to detect that problem. And so we've been working with some of the device companies to feed our knowledge and our insights in the hopes that they can design better defibrillators and pacemakers. Dr. Sen, most of the um, focus in America when it comes to heart disease has been on coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis. And we know some cardiologists who wish we could just put uh, statins in the water supply and that would be the end of the problem. 
And yet you've pointed out that there are people who have cardiac arrest without clogged coronary arteries. So I'm assuming that for them, a statin wouldn't be protective. Am I mistaken? That's correct. And I think what running a study like ours, which has now been ongoing for 12 years, we're starting to see trends in presentation of disease. And it turns out coronary artery disease through the efforts of my interventional cardiology colleagues and general cardiology colleagues has become less of a burden on the overall sudden death presentation. It's still a substantial portion. We're talking about half of the cardiac causes, but overall it's only about a third of the causes now. And the remainder, it turns out, are thickening of the heart muscle or dilation of the heart muscle. And so that is really taking over in our observation. Um, the burden of coronary disease has come down, but the other structural conditions like dilation of the heart tissue or thickening the heart tissue seems to be underlying more and more of these cases. What about what you called sudden spasm? In other words, the coronary artery clamps down, closes, shuts down blood flow. Sort of like a muscle cramp. Yeah. What causes that and what can be done to reverse it? It's a great question. I think um, there are different ways to describe this condition. Some people call it minoca or myocardial infarction without obstructive coronary arteries. And it, as you describe, is a spasm of the arteries where that spasm leads to low oxygen flow and death of heart muscle tissue. So in all effects, very much like a heart attack. We're beginning to understand those conditions. Sometimes it could be inflammation of the heart muscle. It could be reversible potential conditions. And some people are just prone to these attacks and we might treat them with medicines like calcium channel blockers, relaxing medicines, or vasodilating medicines. But I must say that, you know, overall, it's not a very common overlying, underlying cause of sudden death. Well, I remember those old time movies where some of them in black and white, where the man would clutch his chest and go, my nitroglycerin, please. And the, the bad nephew would hold the nitroglycerin away from him and he dropped dead. What about nitroglycerin? Is it still helpful? So if somebody has what we call stable angina, <clears throat> where they have severe blockages in the arteries leading to those kinds of attacks, Nitroglycerin can be helpful in that situation. But as a primary prevention for spasm, that has never been studied, and I, I would not recommend using it in that setting. Uh, in other words, if somebody has established coronary artery disease with these anginal attacks, nitrogen, nitroglycerin can be helpful, but not in the other settings. Dr. Sen, there has been a lot of controversy thanks to COVID and a category of drugs called HCQ, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, because they can cause something we refer to as long QT interval. There are a surprising number of medications that can actually do that. Can you tell us why that's important and why people who have naturally a long QT interval or are taking a drug that has a capability of causing a long QT interval can be so dangerous? Sure. And so, as you alluded to, these medicines uh, lengthen the recovery period of the heart electrical activity, what we call the QT interval. And when your QT interval gets too long, your heart can stop suddenly. And so, we monitor this carefully on an EKG looking at the QT interval. And so, what are some causes of that? You could be born with a condition where one of the channels in your heart, the electrical channels in your heart, are not working properly, and then you're born with a condition called long QT syndrome. And indeed, those patients are at risk for their heart stopping suddenly. And in certain situations, I would implant a defibrillator in such patients. But other things can cause your QT interval to prolong, even with normal a normal heart. And, and several of those medicines, one of them you alluded to, hydrochloroquine, but there's a number of medicines. There's a website called qtdrugs.org that is a very nice resource to, that has 
characterize and quantified and um, compiled a comprehensive list of these medicines that might increase your QT interval. And so if a patient is on one or two or three of these, we pay very close attention to the QT interval because it may lead to sudden death or set your heart stopping suddenly. And if so, one of your listeners may be on a medicine that is on that list. My recommendation would be if they are being prescribed a second medicine or new medicine, making sure their doctor or their pharmacist double checks that their new medicine doesn't also interact and cause long QT uh, interval. Dr. Sen, we are just about out of time. Uh, because you have focused so much on cardiac arrest, what would you like our listeners to know about this potentially fatal condition and what they can do either to prevent it or have a defibrillator on hand in case they're vulnerable? Yeah. So um, one of the most important things is time to defibrillation and time to rescue. And it may not be feasible or realistic for your listeners to buy a $2,000 AED in their home, but it is relatively cheap to learn how to do CPR. And I think that would be the key recommendation I would have for your listeners is to learn how to do CPR in case a loved one needs to be rescued. And as long as someone is there to witness it and start CPR and call for paramedics, they have a much better chance at surviving that cardiac arrest. Dr. Zian Zen, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Zian Zen, the Murray Davis Endowed Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's a cardiologist and electrophysiologist and an expert on sudden cardiac death. Dr. Tsen is the founder and principal investigator of the NIH-funded Postmortem Systematic Investigation of Sudden Cardiac Death Study, which has investigated every sudden death in San Francisco County since 2011 in collaboration with the medical examiner. We asked Dr. Sen about warning signals for cardiac arrest. They include fainting during exercise, palpitations, shortness of breath, and swollen legs. Such symptoms require medical evaluation. There's more information at peoplespharmacy.com. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,365. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Have you learned to use a defibrillator? You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast contains information we could not fit into today's show. We discuss pacemakers, statins, and whether the very old drug nitroglycerin is still useful. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast. You can find out ahead of time what topics we're covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.